Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? If you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you know that one of our favorite topics to discuss is race and ethnicity. And that's not just because it's a passion for both Keith and I. It's because it's a theme that runs throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. The Bible has a tremendous amount to say about ethnic identity and how in Christ, diverse ethnic identities are brought together in union with him. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Eli Bonilla. He wrote the book Mixed. It's a fantastic book about his own experience having a mixed ethnic heritage. And as you'll discover in the podcast, this is a topic we haven't actually explored at all. And that's exactly why I wanted to have Ellie on. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Let's hop in. Ellie, it is fantastic to finally have you on the show today. Oh, man. No, it's a privilege to be on. So we met for the first time last March at a conference where I heard you speak about mixed ethnic identity in the American church. And we had a chance afterwards to talk over some wings because that's, you know, a normal thing people do. Go ahead and get some wings together. <laughs> yeah. And as we talked and you were sharing more of your story with me, I knew that I had to have you on the show. But as you were talking, if I can just be really candid, I realized that I had spent almost no time thinking about what you were discussing. Not race and ethnicities are topics that we discuss frequently on the podcast, but really what it's like to be someone of a mixed ethnic heritage. It's not part of the conversation that I was really attuned to. And that's part of why I was so excited to have you come on the show, because I was actually thinking through the people we've had on, and this is a topic that we have not discussed. And even using that word topic, I think is a little bit dangerous because this isn't a topic. This is a life. (laughs) This is a story. And so I do want to start with your story. Maybe just tell us a bit about your family and your own experiences as a child and teenager as you navigated your own mixed ethnic heritage. Yeah. Well, you know, you even bringing that up, that it was such a rare conversation to even have was the reason that I got on this journey of even writing a book about it, speaking about it and grappling with it. Because I guess the place in the story I can start from maybe as a crisis point that then made me dive into my past to unpack some of those stories. And then up to now was in 2020, when we were having conversations around race and ethnicity. And for people to know, I was raised in South Texas, in San Antonio, San Antonio, Texas. So about two and a half hours from the border. And my father, he is Mexican. My mother is Dominican. They're both immigrants in their early teens moving to the United States. And so I am second generation Latino. 
Afro-Latino on my mom's side. So my mom is a black woman, but she is Latina. She's Hispanic, speaks Spanish. That's the Hispanic part, Latina, Latin America, but African ancestry. And my father is from Nogales, Mexico. And so when this conversation around race happened, especially in the BLM movement, Black Lives Matter movement, my mother is a part of the black community. So I'm 50%, if you will, black community, but also 50% Hispanic, Latino, Mexican, my dad's side. So growing up in San Antonio. And so I think when this topic hit me that I was like, wait a second, I don't know who has an answer for this because I feel like no answers are answering this for me. Like there are answers out there, but felt inadequate was a moment I had on the east side of San Antonio. And it was like a social justice forum at a local church, a black church in San Antonio, where we had councilmen there. We had the chief of police there, several African-American pastors, white pastors, and a couple of Latino pastors. And in that conversation, I never forget, my mother stands up. Maybe there were several people that had shared and it was kind of an open mic. She stands up and she pauses and kind of looks around the room. And she opens with the phrase, I'm confused. And it was like a movie. Like the way she paused, looked around, said, I'm confused, and then paused again. Like the tension in the room, it was palpable. And she turns around, she says, I have raised my son under the cultural pretense that he should be careful when he drives around or when he walks around our neighborhood because of the color of his skin as a young black man, but we're hearing now here in 2020 that us that are both black and Latino, we're getting mixed signals on whether or not we're allowed to be in this conversation right now. So I'm confused. I don't know if the answer is no for us to be able to speak up right now, or the answer is yes. But what I can say is I don't know. And I want to know if my son can participate in this conversation, if I can participate in this conversation. And, you know, that really hit home for me because I, at the time, was looking on Facebook and I would see a lot of All Lives Matter posts, but they weren't by white people. They were by Mexican friends and and people from the community. They were all Hispanic. And then simultaneously, all my African-American friends and Caribbean friends that were putting Black Lives Matter posts. But So I kind of was thrust into this complicated conversation in that way and not even realizing that there were so many dimensions that I didn't know I hadn't come to terms with. And then as that was happening, I would remember growing up in schools where predominantly Hispanic and I was the black boy, right? Like I was called every slur, if you will, but I'm also 100% Latino. I'm 100% Hispanic. Like both of my parents are from Latin America. Both of my parents are Hispanic, Spanish speaking. I'm bilingual. And yet all of my interactions with racism and my African ancestry came from the Latino community and not so much the Anglo community. And so that's just to kind of set everyone in the place of 2020 was a confusing time, finding my voice and ultimately finding that, yeah, there needs to be a niche to have this conversation. I love your mom's boldness and courage because to say I am confused is about the last thing anyone is ever willing to admit in the moment. We think that we have to have the answers. We think that we have to have the solutions. And yet, when we're talking about something as complex as ethnic identity, and then you add into that the complexities of history of ethnic strife in the United States, 
well, man, I'm confused too. And I'm glad someone's saying it. But as you already highlighted, that situation of confusion is more acute if you, with your own ethnic background, don't fit into maybe the neat categories that are being discussed in the big public discourse. And you wrote in your book how this experience with your mom began to make you think about your past and reflect on your own experiences as a child as you were trying to navigate your own ethnic identity. You share the story about growing up in elementary school, being a predominantly white school at that point, and that changes in the future. But can you start there with, I think you were taking a standardized test and you had to check some boxes. One of the jokes I made early on whenever I started doing these talks was until the age of 20, I was a white man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I've been white for 20 years of my life. And really, at least in the eyes of the government, I was. And in standardized testing in Texas, the time that I was growing up in the early 2000s, the only racial boxes that you had was white, black, Asian, Pacific Islander. And you had to choose one of those. And so, being in class, we would ask the teacher, all of us kids that are Hispanic, we would ask, we're like, teacher, well, where do we circle Latino? And we're like, oh, well, that's not a race. That's an ethnicity. That's We got another category over here, but you have to circle something on race. And the default for Hispanics was white. It almost didn't even become a thought anymore for like several years because I knew that the second category would help, not realizing that I'm marking white on all of these things for the doctor, for school, you know, and then my name is Eliezer, but I go by Ellie. And so the name confusion, the circling checkbox confusion was there. And so I think early on, it was confusing at first. And then it was like, oh, I guess this is the way things are. I'm not going to ask any questions because also all the Hispanics in my class are circling the same thing. So what led to the change where you said, I'm actually going to start checking the black box? That was post-2020. All of the things that were mentioned with the African-American struggle or the black struggle, I think more specifically the black struggle, I've experienced, I've been followed around. I've been put on the hood of my car. I've been pulled over for, you know, reasons, quote unquote, wondering why my license, for example, one of the times that I got pulled over and pulled out of my car was in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge. I just had Texas license plates. They asked me to step out of my car on a bullhorn, surrounded me with like three SUVs, just a case of mistaken identity. And really to justify why I got pulled out of my car was, well, why do you have Texas plates in Louisiana? And I'm like 18. I'm like, I don't know, because Louisiana is next door to Texas. I'm like, do you not see <laughs> Texas plates? We're like three hours from the Texas border. And a lot of different other things, as I mentioned, names and slurs directed towards me. And so I, in a lot of ways, I have had that experience. But like when I broke it down racially, I felt like, you know, and this is not to blanket anyone with this experience to say that this is the way anyone that has a mixed heritage should go, just to give kind of my take on it, was there was a little redemption that I felt like I needed where I was presented again when my son was born, what is the race of the father? Like my ethnicity is Latino and Hispanic. And I was presented with race. And I think it was like the first time in a while that I had seen those boxes and I had to check them again. And I looked at the boxes and I was like, man, my mom, when she did her ancestry, she is so Nigerian. She is so much Nigerian in her blood. And, you know, me looking like a doppelganger of my mom, 
I'm like, my African ancestry is West African. And so I'm going to go ahead and circle black. And I went ahead and did that. And it felt like for the first time I embraced officially, like I put it on an official documentation that I embraced this side of me. I don't think it was anything deeper than that other than I have an opportunity to say yes to this thing. Do I agree with racial categorizations the way that they are in the United States? No. And I outlined that in the book. But I think for myself, participating in that was more for an acceptance of a part of me that I never had an official embracing of until that definitive moment on a piece of paper. And so, yeah, I hope that's a clear explanation to why I said yes to that in that moment. I want to hop back into your story in just a second, but I think it is helpful. And we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, but can you help us understand the difference between race and ethnicity and why, if I've understood you correctly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, you prefer ethnic language over racial language? By definition, race is something that is all external. So you identify people's races by their external features. So that's both their skin color, but also facial features that certain groups share in common. You know, whether it's the shape of the nose, the eyes, the ears, the color of the eyes, the color of the skin, the texture of the hair, all of those racial categories are built and predicated on those external factors. And the reason that I really like the ethnic and really the Bible when it speaks about the distinct peoples of the earth, it uses the term ethnos, at least in the Greek, which is ethnicities, because back during those times, people were more likely to be identified by the region they were from and the people they associated with more than what they look like in appearance. Of course, that was a descriptor, but it wasn't to the standard of the U.S. where it's a box, you're this, this is this group, because you look like this, right? Ethnicity doesn't speak just to what you look like. Ethnicity speaks to the culture you carry, the heritage you carry, the history behind it, the language that you share. It's so much more robust and speaks to a lot more of what the human experience is than race, because I can look black, but a Jamaican a Bohemian, a Nigerian, an African-American, a Colombian, all of us that may even look the same because of our heritage, our culture, our language couldn't be any more different, but race wouldn't see that. Race wouldn't tell you that. Race would say, you're black. And I just think it's a healthier way to look at distinctions than those racial categories. We had Michelle Sanchez on the show not too long ago, and we were talking about this. And it's been a helpful distinction for me to have, which is understanding that, as you just said, you know, race is phenotypical. Like we're looking at physical outward appearances. And it's not just that, though. It's a social structure because throughout the history of Europe colonizing different places, a really easy way to categorize people and value people and show them dignity or lack thereof is by looking at their physical appearance. And so it's also a way of categorizing categorizing different kinds of individuals that, like you just said, doesn't take into account the wildly diverse differences that can exist between people who share phenotypes. I mean, this is true of white people as well. I mean, if you meet someone from France and then you meet someone from Belgium, I've met people from both those countries. They are very different. They both have white skin, but their cultures are radically different. Their languages are different. Their way of seeing the world is even different. And of course, that's true of many people across these racial boundaries. And that's why I think the idea of keeping ethnicity in the foreground is helpful. And then 
I like that you highlight this is a biblical category. Race is something that comes after the Bible. It's a way of thinking about humanity that we have, you know, in some senses, superimposed onto our experiences. Back to your story a bit. In the book, you shared about your transition from elementary school to middle school, I believe. And so you went from a predominantly white elementary school to a ethnically mixed middle school. And so can you just share your experience, like trying to navigate this different world? I mean, it felt night and day. And so like the way that my neighborhood was set up, my parents' house sat kind of on the border of two different neighborhoods. One neighborhood was predominantly white, affluent neighborhood. And the other side, literally the other side of the street, we had like three sets of projects. And then you get into more the east side of San Antonio, where you had more concentration of African-Americans. And so where my middle school, Garner Middle School sat, it kind of sat on the other side of the street. And you kind of had a choice in our neighborhood, whether you were going to go to Alamo Heights, which is the predominantly preppy white school in the affluent neighborhood, or you were going to go to Garner, which these are both public schools, but Garner is that ethnically and culturally mixed school that you got kind of everybody is in that school. And so I ended up going to Garner I think it was the first time where I had to experience this racial ethnic picking of sides because there were people that I related to ethnically because I'm half Mexican. So the Mexican community that's there. But then there were people that I related to racially, which is the first time I see multiple African-Americans. And even during my time while I was there in middle school, Hurricane Katrina took place. And so we had an influx of African-Americans that came to my school, I believe in my seventh grade year. And so it was the first time where I felt like I identified at least physically with African-Americans, but still very culturally, I was going to an all Spanish church in my dad's church and it was majority Mexican church. And so still having that Mexican experience at home and, you know, and at church, but then coming to school where there are Mexicans, but then there are also African-Americans and the Mexicans treat me like an African-American, but the African-Americans treat me like a Latino. And so it was kind of like the first place where I was like, so what side do I choose? And it was really, and especially when the influx of students from Louisiana came in, where lines were drawn. It's like, we're Texan or we're Hispanic and those are Louisiana and they're African-American and like people kind of push people to either side of the extremes. And I would hear how people would talk about the other person. And I felt offended by both sides. Like, I was like, wait, don't talk about Mexicans like that. Wait, don't talk about black people like that. Like, I'm getting hit by both sides. And so middle school finally kind of opened the door to, I think, those beginning questions of what am I? And you would think that being in a majority white school would have done that, that I would have felt isolated and like ostracized. But there is something about elementary that I still feel like we have our innocence and we're still not categorizing that harshly to where you come into a space that is multiracial, multiethnic, and the groups are starting to form, right? The tribes, if you will, are starting to form in middle school. And I'm kind of caught in the middle, but it made me more hyper aware. And so, yeah, I definitely had an awakening, if you will, getting into middle school. Can you share for us, I mean, you do a fantastic job of this in the book, of just what it felt like to be able to be in place everywhere and out of place everywhere. Like this strange experience of I can go with any group, but I'll always be an outsider in any group. And not everybody can go in all these different <laughs> groups. What's that like? 
Yeah, that's what I call my book, A Visitor's Pass. You know, I have access to all of these groups. I have shared experiences with all of these groups. But the further I would venture into conversation, the more I felt like I didn't have all of the experiences they had. Like I am black, but I'm not African-American black. So there are things within the African-American culture that I just didn't understand. Now I was around black friends and could I get the references and did I watch the movies and listen to some of the music for sure. But I was at a limit with my experiences within that community. And likewise, on the Mexican side of things, my Spanish was super broken. And so I didn't understand all of the Mexican um, pop culture references. I didn't understand all of the shows. But I mean, nonetheless, I was still Mexican. And then even more, the Dominican side of me, all of my mom's family lived in New Jersey and New York. And so I would have to go up there to visit them and I would get glimpses of what it meant to be Caribbean or Dominican, but then I would come back to South Texas. And so I had missing pieces in all of these groups. And what you'll find is, you know, every group kind of has their ideal, what you would consider that stereotypical ideal for the group so that like what makes a good Mexican, right? Like what are the features of a good Mexican or a good Dominican or like what's a strong black man and, you know, what's a strong American or a Texan? And all of these groups have their idealistic version of that. They have their maybe their pop culture idol that represents what it means to be that thing. And I found that as I ventured into all these conversations, I did not have the time nor the lifespan to live all the different things I was in order to be an expert or someone that is to be admired within the ethnic categories that I associated myself and that I was a part of. And so I think that that visitor pass speaks to that. Like I can come in, but I can't stay here. I feel like I can visit, but I can't make my home here. You know, I'll always be the odd one out. I'll always be like the visiting party. Like, oh, yeah, he's cool. He can be in here. He kind of gets it, but he'll never all the way get it. And I think that's what to kind of circle back to what my mom said. I'm confused. It's like you get it, but you don't get it all the way. And so it's like, oh, so I even got into when I would post on social media at the time. I was like, well, you know, also the injustice for the African-American, but also the injustice for the children on the border. They're tens of thousands in cages on the border. We need to talk about the broken border crisis that's taking place in immigration. And then I would have my African-American friends say, oh, oh, hey, bro, don't dilute this conversation. Don't distract this conversation. It's not time for that. We'll let you know when we get ours, right? And at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but I'm also trying to get ours, like in the sense of like, yeah, you know, I want to fight for the black voice because I'm also a black voice. But at the same time, I'm also Hispanic voice. I'm a second gen immigrant. I'm two hours from the border. I have so many of my friends that have fought so hard to get their papers, have gone through some of the most tragic stories of crossing into the United States. And so, yeah, I found myself, I was like, oh, so then there are rules that and stipulations that are placed on me because I'm not all the way this thing, that there are certain times I'm allowed to speak and certain times I'm not because I'm not fully one thing or the other. And so, yeah, that visitor pass has definitely been a rhythm I've had to navigate and still to this day have to navigate in these type of conversations. 
Why do you think that when we're having these conversations around social justice, around things that we say, gosh, the world is not the way it's supposed to be, that we'll often find ourselves saying, you can't talk about X because really we need to be talking about Y. I mean, here's an example that I guess probably comes more out of the black and white discourse. But if people listen to the Oliver Anthony song, Richmond, North of Richmond, it's kind of what you're talking about, right? But you have lots of white voices saying, hey, we need to listen to the plight of people who are living in rural environments and can't make a living and can barely afford forward food. And that's what he's singing about. And you have people who say, oh, that's not the conversation we need to have right now. We need to talk about people who are experiencing poverty in urban environments, people who are mostly people of color. That's the conversation that needs to be had. And I hear and I think, why do we have to pick? (laughs) Why can't we have both these conversations at once? I'm just curious. I mean, as you've navigated these spaces, why do you think we have such a propensity to pick and choose what really matters in that way? I label it the myth about double dutch where there are two conversations that are existing together at all times, you know, the poles of either side of a conversation, right? And what I think the Christian, right, from a Christian perspective, the Christian in the church, what we fall prey to oftentimes is the rhythm of culture and the rhythm of the two sides that are talking back and forth about this and having to jump at the rhythm and the pace per conversation. And I think that that's a complete myth. Like this whole thing about we have to choose and culture tells us what empathy looks like and what to be empathetic towards and what is urgent and what is important. I think historically it's shown that this is really, especially in America, this is the first time that these movements are not spearheaded by Christian leaders. You go all the way back, you know, Dr. Robert Chow Romero, the author of Brown Church, he outlines as well. He's like, man, the church has been at the forefront of social justice movements since the 1500s, since when the first slaves were brought over to Hispaniola. So essentially my mom's people, those slaves that were brought on those ships, that they had to take a time out. The Spaniards did. And it was a theological conversation on human nature and who is human and what is the Imago Dei. And so it has been historically in the Americas that the church has been involved in some way at the forefront, whether good or lacking, that's beside the point. The point is that they were at the front. And I feel like we have kind of gotten into a place where we're following culture's lead and culture has a small table that doesn't have enough seats. Culture does not have the capacity to have a kingdom conversation because culture is limited in its scope and view of what justice truly is and what good truly is. And what I love about the Bible and the Christian ethos is that grace, mercy, righteousness, and justice is such a big enough table for everyone to sit at simultaneously where everyone can come and sit and receive everything that they need and everything that they would ever want, that I think that the church has a prime opportunity right now to really give to the world a conversation that's a little bit more robust. Now, what does that mean? That means that if we're choosing to sit at the table of Christ that is big enough for all of us, we have to surrender to Christ's rule and reign. We have to surrender to a Christ identity at this table. This is not a table where a group is elevated above any other group. And so I think that there is kind of this in culture, let's take our turns, wait in line, take a number. You can't find that in the Bible, that there are people excluded 
from receiving mercy, excluded from receiving grace. I think it's way more spiritual than that. Everyone has a calling to the body. Every body has a function. And there are people that are called to different sectors of society in a robust way, powered by the Holy Spirit in all wisdom to be able to be effective in all spheres of society and culture. And I think we have tried to make certain parts of the body the same as other parts of the body. And we have tried to make certain people's assignment, other people's assignment, according to who's the loudest and who's the most passionate. And I think that if the church actually rose up and allowed the other parts of the body of the church to express themselves in their fullness, both the widow and the orphan would be taken care of, but also those people in the business places that are committing suicide at crazy rates, especially the Anglo men that are, are committing suicide, that people are caring about them, but at the same time, those that are crossing over in the border, but at the same time, the genocide that's happening around the world. Like there is a clarion call for the body to unite together to be the answer to everything in the world because that's what the body was created to be instead of trying to move like a uniform school of fish, right? And that's the distinction right there. I think I just said it. We're not called to be uniformed. We're called to be united. And unity allows for diversity. Uniformity does not allow for that to take place. And so that was a long roundabout way to say, why can't we have multiple conversations? Well, I don't think the church is actually united. I think the church is afraid of loud voices and afraid of not being wrong that because it has relinquished its authority to what should be happening to people that may feel pain and the pain may feel real, but don't have an understanding, a true understanding of the fullness of what justice and righteousness is and allowing certain people to handle certain things and others to handle other things. I hope that made sense. That's something I've been working through. No, I think it does. And what I'm wrestling with, even as you're sharing, is I love the double Dutch metaphor <laughs> because it is helpful in thinking through how we're trying to dance around multiple conversations at a single time and we're stuck in between and how are we going to be able to do it all at once and to say, no, I need to step out of the double Dutch for a second and realize what I'm hearing you say is, number one, is culture cueing our concerns? Do I care about what I care about because my political party cares about it? Do I care about what I care about because my ethnic group cares about it? What's cueing my concerns? Is culture cueing my concerns or is the kingdom cueing my concerns. But if the kingdom's cueing my concerns, I love that picture of the big table. Well, guess what? Everybody's got a seat. So this is going to be a complicated conversation, <laughs> but isn't it the conversation you actually want to have? And the church is the only place where you get to have that conversation because it's not about one group taking power and having the power to do whatever they want. It's about every group laying down their power and sacrificing it to Christ and saying, hey, Jesus, what do you want us to do? And I think people will hear and they say, well, gosh, that sounds awfully idealistic and nice in theory. <laughs> but I mean, I think that is where the beauty of the church just come into play because churches are our local bodies. They're places where, you know what, I can't be all things to all people in all places, but we do have to seek to have that conversation, for me at least, in Columbia, Missouri. And for you and anybody listening to this, wherever you are located, does my table have space for all these voices? And are our concerns being cued by the kingdom or by these cultural debates? So I actually think it's a really helpful way of framing it. Yeah. And I want to be weary of the mean girl mentality, the you can't sit with us <laughs> mentality. Like I never want to get to a place where I tell someone that they can't sit at my table. And I put this in the book. It's such a countercultural revolutionary idea of Jesus saying to love your enemy. And many of us have 
people that we cannot stand. And especially given the tensions and conversations we've had in the last several years, we've seen people say some crazy things, things that we completely don't agree with. But you know what? At the same time, I want us to be careful that we don't take cues from culture that seek to cancel, right? That we take cues from Christ, that man, he was so radical in the people that sat at his table, like the tax collectors that sat at his, it would blow our minds when you break down like the cultural historical context of who those people were, the sellouts of the community, right? For him to go to, you know, Zacchaeus house or to have Matthew with him, like you kind of go down the line. And so it is super idealistic, but really that's what Christ calls us to his standard, right? He calls us what the Bible would say to perfection, right? He still holds that standard. He doesn't lower it for us, but he gives us his spirit and his spirit is ever shaping and forming us. And so my hope is that if we continue to get into these conversations, that Christ continues to refine us, as John would say, until his appearing and we're completely like him, let us continue to become more like him. That's what the whole message of mixed is, is can we slow down enough to go deep enough with people that we don't just see their skin color, and we don't just see certain parts of these conversations, but we see people how Christ sees them, and we're able to guide people along the journey. And I feel like if we could all come together to pace ourselves in that way and set maybe a new pace for a conversation, we will see more people helped, and we'll see more justice done than if we were to run at the rhythm of culture as it stands. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Ellie, returning back to your story a bit, you don't just have a mixed ethnic heritage. Your wife does as well. So you married someone from different ethnic heritages than your own. So could you share a bit about your wife? And specifically, you have a really powerful story in your book about an experience you guys had together on an airplane that, again, just helped bring your experience as someone with a mixed ethnic background into the foreground and just wrestling through the confusion that comes with that. My wife, she is Palestinian-American, right? So to talk about someone with uh, ethnic heritage that 
is full of tension. And oh my goodness, I mean, it's probably as far back as any tensions in the world can go, probably the farthest back. She's had to navigate so many things. And she's actually writing some of those things down as we speak. She's writing on these conversations around what it's like to be a Palestinian Christian raised in the United States. And so you talk about a book, like, I'm definitely going to be the first one that buys that book, right? But we had this experience on a plane, I believe it was in 2021, when we were all wearing masks on a plane. And my wife, she's half Palestinian. Her dad's from Betzahor, Bethlehem in Palestine, moved here when he was 20. But her mom is Anglo. Her mom is white from the United States. So she's mixed race, ethnicity. And so she's wearing her mask. And at the time, she's like seven months pregnant. And we're getting off the plane. And there's this African-American couple. And we could tell that they had a little too much to drink. And so we're trying to get in the aisle. She's taking some time to get into the aisle and she gets bumped. And my wife, you know, she's an alpha. My wife is an alpha. She's like, oh, hey, yo, I, I need some space. And the lady turns around and she looks at my wife. My wife is wearing a mask and so only seeing her eyes. And she's like, oh, man, there are people always trying to take things from us. And, you know, now they're trying to take our space from us. And, you know, and just kind of making comments of us, us and them, us and them. And I'm like, I'm putting two and two together. My wife is just trying to ignore it, but she keeps on like this kind of starts to get louder about it. And we're getting into the bridge to go into the terminal. And I mean, at this point, it's like becoming a full blown scene where we're not even saying anything anymore. And this is kind of getting away from us. And so in order to like play to the fact like, hey, yo, I'm black, you're black. You know, that baby, I literally say, hey, that's my wife. And by the way, she's carrying my child who, by the way, is black like us because I'm Dominican. And she turns around. She says, yeah, well, but I'm real black. Like I'm real black. And then she started chanting BLM going into the terminal and to tell everyone, like, is that the right way to handle that situation? I don't think so. I could think of many other ways I could have handled it. I chose to handle it that way. And it stopped me in my tracks hearing that response because I assumed I was doing the right thing by saying, hey, yo, we all together, right? Like, we're all together, right? And then to hear that, oh, Dominican's not real Black, just as blatantly as that. And then for my wife to be categorized as a white woman, even though her dad, oh my goodness, the stories of her dad from Palestine, you know, during the revolution in the 80s, and the, she shares a heritage that is just so wrought with war and tragedy and intention with her religion and in so much, but for her to be kind of just grouped in and say your people and her having to ask the question, like I've asked the question many times, well, who are my people? And then me assuming, wait, we're our people. And that lady to say, no, you're not our people. I'm our people. I think that moment was just kind of a microcosm of like, man, at this level of conversation, this may not be working. How can we have a healthier conversation so that perhaps interactions like these, we could have a better jumping off point? And so that was a pretty heavy interaction that took place for sure. I so appreciated your stories throughout the book because for people like me who would have said even before reading a book, oh, I've read 
pretty widely on the topic of race and ethnicity. What I really meant was I've read quite a few white authors and black authors on this subject, but to be candid, I've read very few Latino authors on the subject. I've read almost no Asian authors on the subject. And as I was reading your book, I realized, oh my gosh, there is a far wider conversation to be had, not just in terms of the kingdom, but in terms of our own historical and cultural context, people who live in the United States, which is a massive ethnic melting pot, people from every nation in the world are living in this country right now. And so why do you think at this point the conversation around race and ethnicity excludes so many people of color? Uh, Well, I think, and I've read a little bit on this as well, quite a bit actually, is that there definitely is a huge, huge history of injustice between the white American and the African American. Huge. 400 years worth. And I'm in the United States. So I'm living in the place that that history took place. So I'm a second gen immigrant. And the cultures in which my parents come from come full of injustices. Like, for example, I'm like, yeah, I'm a good Latino because I speak Spanish. And it's like, well, how did Spanish get here? It's not an American language. It's a European language. Like, English is a European language, which is also an aside. It's really funny. Like, whenever you know, I have Hispanics tell me, they're like, oh, you don't speak Spanish. You speak the white people language, English. And I'm like, guys, I hate to break it to you. Spain is like next door. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like we all speak European languages here. Portuguese the same. Like, but that to say that I think that here in the United States, the reason that the conversations are black and white is because it's 400 years of just the worst type of injustice, slavery. So that's number one, you know, and I think to follow up on that point, I truly do believe that there is still so much to unpack there. There's still so much that has to be worked through. And a lot of us that come from an immigrant background, obviously, like I said, we have our histories, but now that we're living in a different nation, there is a, I don't want to say a pause, but there is a pace that we jump into. Like we jump into a story when we get here. 400 years of a story for the black and white, and then thousands of years of history for the indigenous people here. And so I don't think it's that people want to exclude. And I think you can ask anybody that is wanting to have a diversity conversation. I don't think anyone would ever tell you like, no, we need to exclude. I think that's also where we get the, hey, we got to handle this first before we handle everything else, because you guys kind of came here late in the game. We've been here, like especially the African-American conversation. However, I don't think that at the pace that culture is running this conversation and the players that get to play in this conversation, I don't believe that we will ever get to a place where everyone will get ultimate redemption and justice if it persists at the pace, direction, and constituents that it's currently at with the conversation that we're currently having it in. And so I think that there is not an understanding on how to integrate well the immigrant community into this conversation. I don't think that we have the system structures or worldview or ever will in worldly culture to have that. I think it's up to the church to really reverse engineer that Revelation 7-9 of like, oh, well, if at the end of all of this, all the tribes, tongues, and ethnicities are going to be together, how do we work our way backwards to where we are, where it's still incomplete, and us as the church 
become the hub or the ecosystem for these things to happen in a graceful way where people are going to offend other people. People are going to say perhaps even insensitive things out of their ignorance, but through the lens of Christianity and through the posture of Christ are able to work through it so that, as Jesus would say, as you love one another and through your unity, people will know that I am who I say I am, that God the Father did indeed send me. I truthfully think that that's where we would end up. But yeah, the reason I I think people are excluded is because the system and structure, I don't think we have the mechanism for that in culture. What wisdom would you give to churches, whether they're predominantly white or predominantly black, that, you know, they're hearing this and they're saying, yeah, we've left some people out of our conversation. What's the next step? That's a good question. Well, I think the next step is to take your time to get to know people. And now I can hear the pastor saying, but there's so many people to know. That's why our job as fivefold ministers is for the equipping of the saints. Like that's literally in our job description. It's how can we lead our congregations? How can we as Christians encourage other Christians to take their time to get to know their neighbor? And their neighbor can literally be their next door neighbor. Their neighbor could be the neighborhood over, the person across the street, the person on the side of town that I rarely visit. But it begins with taking time to build real relationships with people that are different than ourselves and going out of our way to do that. And so I would begin with the people around you. I would begin with people that you are not familiar with. And now this is not to say that I'm asking you to go and make uh, field trips into neighborhoods that are, you know, that are different than yours. But it is honestly to say, how often do you spend time with people within your congregation of different ethnicities or races and just are intentional with spending time to get a peer into their world, to be invited into their space? I think you start there. I think that as a good missionary would tell you, you know, it's finding the person of peace in a community to welcome you into that community. It's, can you look around and are there any people that are potential people of peace in those communities that I could develop relationship with? You know, because I will say this, growing up from a Latino background, I didn't know anything about Palestine. I knew everything about Israel from a Latino perspective. And we pray for Israel and you know, let Israel prosper. And the Bible says, you know, blessing be to Israel. But I was completely blind to the Palestinian community. And it I'm not saying that it took me marrying a Palestinian to get there, but there's something about being in proximity with a group of people that you have been told something about and then getting to know them that changes the dimensions of the way you speak about certain topics, have certain conversations, and it really does slow things down and people become people instead of groups. Well, I really appreciate that point about proximity, and I've seen that to be true in my own life. Even the difference between I'm white leading an all-white small group and leading a small group where there's ethnic diversity, it changes the conversations, not just around topics of you know race and ethnicity, although it certainly changes those conversations. It changes conversations because there's a beauty that comes when people from different cultural backgrounds are bringing both the glory and the ruin of where they come from into the room. 
And the beauty is I actually need my African, Latino, and Asian brothers and sisters in Christ to challenge the excesses of white culture that I'm blind to. And of course, the inverse is true as well. There's a real gift to being in proximity and community. But like you said, it, there's a humanizing element of when you get to know someone who doesn't look like you and who comes from a different background than you, you begin to deeply appreciate where they come from and who they are. And it goes back to the idea you said earlier, of reverse engineering Revelation 7 and this picture of everybody worshiping together. The few Sundays ago, we had what had to be the most diverse team of people leading worship on stage. And we're in a predominantly white city. Our church is predominantly white, but our church has grown quite a bit more ethnically diverse over the last 10 years. But I was looking on stage and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we've got someone from Peruvian descent, someone from Puerto Rican descent, someone from black descent. There was such a diversity. There was an Asian baseball. We had everybody up there, you know, there was a beauty to that. I thought, wow, I feel like I'm living in Revelation 7 right now. And I'm so glad that our church is able to experience this and worship alongside one of and we're still only singing, well, we were singing in two languages in that service, but mostly in one language, in English. But there is a beauty there that we need in our lives that I think Jesus invites us to partake in. In the book, you talk about the difference between identities and identifiers. And I thought that was a really helpful distinction for people. So could you maybe just explain what you mean by each of those terms and how it might be useful for someone trying to navigate a community full of diverse ethnic backgrounds? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, your identifiers are, as it's stated plainly, it's things people can identify you by externally. And it's the way that we categorize people. And it's kind of the natural way we categorize people. We see them first. You, you have a first impression, depending on how the person's dressed or, you know, the ethnic, racial view of them. You know, those are identifiers. And identifiers can extend even further beyond just the ethnic, racial, as I mentioned, the way you dress or the sports you play, right? Like, you know, if you're super swole, really the first conversation most people are going to probably have with you is like, man, I need to get that workout routine, right? Like he's the swole guy. Or like if there are two guys named John and one's swole and one's not, it's like that's swole John, right? Like, you know, as your identifier gets kind of attached to. Yeah. Hopefully you don't call the other guy skinny John because that's just, you know, <laughs> he's, he's feeling bad now. Yeah. Swole John and skinny John. But what I attempt to do is to say in the book, like, be careful not to make your identifiers your identity, right? Because you can become a caricature of yourself very easily, right? Like you can feed into all the meathead norms if you're Swole John and only talking about lifting and like, that's your whole personality. And people do that. I felt even pressured. Like, for example, I went to Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee, right? So it's predominantly white university, Christian university. And there were so many times, because I was like one of the only Hispanics there, that I felt pressured to be more Latino. And it wasn't people asking me to be more Latino, but there is just something about like wanting to lean into my identifiers that like pulled out of me things that I'm like, man, I would never do this if I was amongst other Latinos. Like, for example, my wife, she makes fun of me all the time for this. There's a drink, a Dominican drink called Malta. And if you've never tasted it before, you might hate it. It's really a Caribbean drink. And so like my Haitian brothers and sisters will know this drink too, Puerto Ricans, et cetera. But I remember having it, and just to be clear for my pastor listening, non-alcoholic drink. It's just a Caribbean soft drink. But if you don't have the taste buds for it, it's going to hit you. Like it's going to hit you sideways. And so my wife drank it with my friends and I had it just because I was like, yeah, I'm Dominican. I'm like, dude, I never drink Malta like for fun. It is a struggle to drink it. But it's like stuff like that, just little choices. And the point that I try to make in the book is to be careful 
that what people identify you as in terms of your external appearance, how you're dressed or what racial ethnic categories they put you in, or if you're a skater or an athlete or, you know, whatever the case may be, that you don't take those on as your identity because you're deeper than that. And really the place that I fall into for your identity, surprise, surprise, is your identity in Christ, right? Because our identifiers are our distinctions, like what we look like for sure. But what we share in common is a common identity, which is an identity submitted to Christ, an identity in Christ, that Christ is our identity. And so I want to make it abundantly clear to people that, man, especially this day and age where we throw around the term identity all the time, that we become very careful with the way that we use that term. As a matter of fact, when you get into ideologies around identity, we've made certain desires our identity. We've made the way we dress our identity. We made our skin colors our identity. But at the end of the day, there is no identity apart from Christ. You know, it sounds and feels like a comp out, but as I really started to wade through the complexity of this, I ended up finding Jesus. For many people that may be listening to this podcast for like nuggets of like, man, what's the nuance on this? And like, can I dig down even deeper? The higher you climb the mountain or the digger you deep, what you will find if you are truly with all your heart trying to find the truth is you'll find Jesus. You'll dig to the earth's core looking for truth. And if you find truth, what you will find is Jesus. If you climb the tallest mountain of truth to get to the pinnacle of enlightenment, you will find sitting at the top of that mountain, Jesus. And so I guess my whole lesson that I walked away from the book with, especially trying to figure out, man, how much of my life have I made my identifiers, what I look like, what I've let people label me as, the opinions that have been hurled or the stereotypes put on me and what my identity was, I ended up finding Jesus instead. Yeah. I love hearing this, you know, especially as we're even coming to the end, thinking about where we started. And I think you felt more acutely your ethnic identity because you had a mixed ethnic identity. It's easy for someone like me who is white living in a predominantly white culture to be to some degree oblivious about my own ethnic identity and my own identifiers. In other words, I simply take for granted, and this is mostly the case with people who are white, my identifiers as being true to who I am. And hearing your story of wrestling through, you know, your own ethnic identity, it's a reminder to me that actually I need to go through and everybody needs to go through something similar because at the core of it, who I am cannot be watered down or crystallized into my skin color or even into my cultural background. Even though there are great things about my culture that will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth, of course that's true. But like you just said, at the fundamental ground of it all is Jesus. Jesus. And that's really the starting place from which we can find what is good and true in our cultural identifiers and the things that we, I think, wrongly and idolatrously turn to and think, oh, it's going to make sense of my life. And so again, that's why I appreciate your book so much. It was challenging me to see from a different experience, from a different perspective, a topic that, you know, we've discussed widely, race, ethnicity. And I hope that as people are listening to this, they'll take the challenge that I've taken, which is even reading through your book and seeing some of your footnotes and authors that you're citing, Latino 
author is like, I'm going to go pick up that book. That's someone <laughs> I need to read. <laughs> but I'd encourage anybody listening to start with your book, Mixed. It's a fantastic book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd recommend listening to the audio book. That's just me because you read it and you did a fantastic <laughs> job. Thank it you. It was fun. I was, it was like I was on a phone conversation with you. So pick up the audio book and check it out. Ellie, if people want to follow what you're doing and stay connected, where can they do that? You can follow me at Ellie, spelled Eli, E-L-I, Bonilla Jr., so it's at Ellie Bonilla Jr. all together for Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. You type that in, Google, and you'll find me there. That's fantastic. Ellie, would you mind praying for everybody listening today? For sure. Lord, we are so grateful that we get to live in the cultural moment we get to live in. That you made no mistake to place us in this place in history. And God, I'm grateful for all of... Uh, the servant leaders that are listening to this, that have chosen to follow you, and maybe those that are on the fence of following you. God, uh, we are alive for such a time as this. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we continue to tackle these conversations uh, around truth and, you know, being challenged in culture by different sides on what is truth and what side should we believe, uh, may we choose like Joshua chose when he was confronted with Jericho to not make you choose a side, but for us to choose your side, that there's only one right side and it's your side, God. And God, would we have the confidence in every cultural conversation, the confidence in every sphere that we lead to trust you, Christ, that you would be the center. You would be the leader. You would be above all things, that there would be nothing that would compete with you in these conversations. God, I pray courage and God, I pray clarity as we spread your message to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. No, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.